Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. At the midweek service, I was working on this a little bit. And I've, I've had a few more thoughts, and I want to teach a message entitled, Ready and Armed for Battle. Ready and Armed for Battle. We all know today is October 31st. We realize for many people this is a great day of celebration. For people like us, this is Reformation Day. We remember when Mr. Martin Luther, he nailed those papers on the door of the church and said we need to discuss some things. And that began the Protestant Reformation. But I want to look at today how we can overcome a defeated foe, and how the devil so very often comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but the Bible gives us information on how to overcome him and how we should perceive him. So in Ephesians chapter 6, notice what it says in verse number 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The song says, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary pure and holy, tried and true, and with thanksgiving I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Let's sing that prayer. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary pure and holy, tried and true, and with thanksgiving I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Well, on this day, all across this nation, there will be young people knocking on doors, young people knocking on your doors, and you have your light on, and you will fill their hands with all kinds of candy, I'm sure. But I want us to know that even though we're not opposed to candy, and we're certainly always glad for any little kid that can go to anyone's house and find some treats, we still need to know the origins of what's taking place and what's behind so much of what's going on. Now, this isn't to say that any and everybody who has a kid marching through the streets understands what I'm about to tell you, but it does mean that it's good to have context. The celebration that people call Halloween, for many people, they don't understand how the world of darkness gets involved with it. 
and in the historical features of the celebration, it was believed by the early Celtics hundreds of years ago that if you dressed up in different costumes, that those costumes would ward off the evil spirits that had come to afflict people and to bring pain and sickness and disease. We also know that in the religion of Wicca, which is the religion of those who practice a lot of witchcraft, October 31st is the most sacred night for people involved with black magic and the dark arts. They believe it's at this point, between the fall and the winter solstice, that there's a, a, some kind of a gateway that makes it possible for people to have access to spiritual life. And that's why on this day so many mediums and psychics and others make a lot of money. And you can go to just about any major city in America and you will find a storefront building somewhere in downtown areas where there will be people who read your tarot cards or gaze into crystal balls to tell your fortune. And in some aspects of it, a medium will sit down across the table from you and if you want to make contact with a deceased loved one or some other person, that person will yield themselves to some kind of a spirit and begin to speak as if communicating with you. Now don't think that any of this is new. In Isaiah chapter 8, this man lived some 750 years before the Lord Jesus was born, and he himself says that when people come to you and tell you to seek after someone with a familiar spirit or some psychic or medium who peeps and chatters and runs their mouth, he says, stay away from them. So even in ancient times, there was witchcraft. Let's not forget when Philip was preaching in the book of Acts chapter 8, it says he was in Samaria and there was a man who was there who had bewitched the people with all kinds of sorcery and people thought he was a mighty man. But that warlock, he came to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and was delivered out of that. We need to remember that Isaiah says, anyone who tells us to seek after whatever is in the darkness, he says there's no light in that person. For us then, we do not pursue nor chase after anything connected with Ouija boards. We don't encourage young people to get involved with any kind of hallucinogens that will change the way that they think. There were drugs that were popular back in the 70s and 80s that definitely gave people <clears throat> all kinds of different feelings and stuff like that. There was a time when heroin was so bad that, I mean, people go to the tops of buildings and, and think that they could just dive off the building and fly. And for a few moments, they were sailing through the air until they hit the ground. A whole lot of people that have gotten involved with things. And you'll notice that when people engage in these activities, there's usually a lot of darkness attached to it. 
Anton LaVey was the founder of the Church of Satan. To be initiated into that church, if, if it was a lady, that lady had to sleep with every male that was a part of that coven. There had to be physical animal sacrifices on that altar in the sanctuary. Mr. LaVey said on one occasion, and I quote, I love it when October 31st comes around to see all the Christians send their kids out dressed like demons and devils, unquote. He said that means that they themselves believe in our celebration. Now understand, the Apostle Paul had a great revival in Acts chapter 19. This is one of the most exciting chapters in the New Testament. Paul went into the coast of Ephesus. The scripture is very plain. He found 12 disciples and said, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? They said, we haven't even heard. But in Acts 19, verse number 6 and 7, Paul laid his hands upon them. The Holy Ghost descended, and they began to speak with other tongues and prophesied. Paul stayed there two years preaching Christ. The Bible says mightily grew the word of God, and that word prevailed. Meanwhile, it tells us that there were special miracles in verse 11 and 12 that were done. People prayed over cloths and handkerchiefs and gave those handkerchiefs to different people, and folks took them home. I know a lot of stories like that, miracles that have come out of people taking some kind of a fabric that elders or pastors or people have prayed over and then taking that and placing it near someone that was sick and a miracle occurred in that person's life. I'm not telling you it happened every time, but I am telling you it has happened sometimes. And this is what Acts chapter 19 is saying. It said diseases departed and evil spirits went out of them. But it also speaks of in the middle of that revival, there were people that were trying to imitate the power of God, and they too wanted to try to cast out devils. And so they heard someone was filled with evil. And they said, we can cast out devils just like Paul. And the Bible says they went to this man. They tried to cast the devil out of him. And in verse 16, it says that man rose up full of the devil, and he beat up seven of them and beat them so bad that he removed their clothing and they fled from the house naked. How many of you know you've lost the fight if you leave the fight with no clothes on? You've lost especially seven to one. And you, can't, you still can't win. And one man is able to defeat all of you. That's exactly what happened. Well, the revival continued. Their false actions didn't change what Paul did. And the scripture says the revival was so great that people who had books of curious arts brought them together in a big bonfire in verse 19 and set them ablaze. That tells me that even people involved with evil have holy books that they read. Even people involved with the dark arts are somehow connected with literature because they have to pass it from one generation to the next generation. 
Now, all the years we've been going to East Africa to preach, the gentleman who's usually our host pastor, his grandparents on both sides were witches and warlocks. Can you imagine that? The kind of evil involved with that. But that cycle was broken when he came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor, what does witchcraft look like? Well, it just depends on where you are in the world. Because the devil himself, he is very crafty and he's very slick with what he does. And one of the things he loves to do is take an evil holiday and then commercialize it so that it doesn't seem like it's as bad as it could be. And all across our nation, in our culture, you look at the movies for kids, they magnify witchcraft. And kids want to go and learn more and more about it. They, they, they sell all kinds of implements and tools and toys that people can use in order to get involved with that lifestyle. But I want you to understand that the Lord made it very plain in the Old Testament, we're never to engage in that. And in the New Testament, we're not supposed to be connected with that. So you pay attention to what comes into your house. You pay attention to the lifestyle that you live. You understand that your body being a temple of the Holy Spirit, it is, it is incumbent upon you to be disciplined in your life because the devil is looking for a way to get in. Now returning to Ephesians 6, notice in verse 10 where Paul says to these people, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Your strength cannot be in and of yourself. We don't have enough willpower to overcome our personal problems. People have tried. People have been trying for thousands of years. I've heard people say to me, I can overcome this on my own. I don't need religion. I don't need God. And then they come to the end of themselves and realize they need God. Because willpower alone can't do it. The scripture here says be strong in him. God has power. God has might. We have to rest in that. Now, I shared about a gentleman <clears throat> I read of one time who was working on some big high-rise buildings in a big city. He might have been 30, 40 stories up. I can't recall. But I know he was on one of those kind of apparatuses where you're out there cleaning windows. So he's got harnesses on and all of that to try to protect himself. Something happened, though. So he ends up with that thing tilted, and he's hanging from a rope, and he's holding on for dear life. And, of course, people walking down across the bottom, they look up. He's yelling. They see him hanging. The people inside the building, they see him hanging. So they're screaming. They're yelling. They're trying to call 911 and everybody else to get the fire department involved. But this man, he was hanging there and hung, I guess, for nearly an hour. Now, you've got to think about what kind of strength you would have to have in order to be holding on. But when you're holding on for dear life, you've got more power than you ever realized. But what this man did after they finally got him down and was talking with him and asked how he was able to endure up there for so long, he said that rope that he was holding on to, 
was a long rope, and he took it and kind of swung it around his body while holding with, with one arm. And he said when he finally got it around his body, he tried to use his feet to pull the rope up a little bit, and he created for himself a little carriage and then tied off a little knot in the thing. And then he said rather than him having to hold the rope and then his strength give out, he let the rope hold him. And this is exactly the kind of relationship with God we need to have. Your strength and power on your own is not enough. It's not enough. But if we let God do the things that he wants to do, he can hold on to us a whole lot better than we can hold ourselves in the faith. You believe that? I do too, absolutely. So the, the scripture is clear then. Be strong in the Lord and in his might. And in his power. Well notice in verse 11. It says put on the whole armor of God. And there are three things about this armor. That are important for you and for me to know. Number one the armor is made by God. And it was forged by God. This is not something that the local blacksmith made. This is spiritual attire. And if God made it, you need to know that God never designed any tool or weapon that's going to be used for your defeat. Everything God gives you, everything God equips you with, is so that you will be victorious over an enemy that comes against you. Yeah, he's never made anything for you or designed or planned any time for your defeat. God has always made sure you had what you needed and his equipment is never faulty so it's made by him but then secondly you need to know that this armor of course it's it's fitted and suited specifically for you so God, God knows what you need for your Christian life. He knows what I need for my Christian life. All of us need a helmet of salvation. All of us need a breastplate of righteousness. All of us need a shield of faith and a sword of the spirit. We need a belt that is made of truth. And we need sandals that are made like the gospel of peace. So all of us have a specific attire for war that is fitted for you. And you have to learn how to battle in your own equipment. Nobody can do your fighting for you. In the midst of your own temptation, I can't fight for you and you can't fight the devil in mine. I can't resist the devil in yours. You can't resist the devil in mine. So we have armor that was made by God. We have armor that is specifically suited for you. And then we also need to know that this armor is durable. This thing lasts forever, folks. There is no, no date on it that says it's going to be expired if not used by such and such date. When God equipped you with this armor for the battle, he knew that the devil was going to be coming at you every day. There is not a time of the day where the devil doesn't want you to be tormented. He, of course, he'd love for you to commit suicide. He wants your family to be sad and grieving and broken. He wants you to be impoverished. He wants your family to be without and to be destitute. He wants your marriage to fail. He doesn't want you to succeed in anything, and the devil works behind the scenes to try to work all of this, and most people don't even know it's the devil doing it. 
They're trying to figure out, well, I, I, I don't understand what's, what, what's going on. Put on your armor and get ready to fight the adversary. Now, we, we have a, a number of scriptures in the Bible, and I call your attention to Romans chapter 13 now, where in verse 12, Paul says that the night is just about over. The night is far spent. He said the day is at hand. So let's cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And, and I want you to understand that the armor that God made for you, the armor God made for me, is an armor that radiates. It's an armor that's visible in darkness. This is why the devil targets you. The devil doesn't have to target his own people because he knows who belongs to him. But you, if you love God and you're passionate about God, the devil's going out of his way to stop you, to destroy you, to push you back, to push you down, to knock you out. He won't be happy until defeat is tattooed on your forehead and you decide, I've given up and I don't even want to fight anymore. And you see a lot of people like that. But the Bible says, cast off the works of darkness. So there are things done in the world of darkness that we have to refrain from. In your past life, before you became a Christian, I'm not going to take a poll and ask you to raise your hand. But I think all of us would agree that there were things we did in our before Christ years that we shouldn't do now. I think all of us understand that there were probably some people that we ran with in those days that it wouldn't be good for us to connect with now unless we were witnessing to them and telling them about God. And, and we understand that there were probably some places we once went to and visited or, or stayed at that we probably ought not go to anymore. And you realize that when your life outside of Christ was doing these things, that all you were doing were producing works of darkness. It wasn't helping your family. It wasn't helping your community. It certainly wasn't helping you individually because you lived and abided in a state of depression. Everywhere you went, there was a cloud looming overhead. How could you smile if all you were doing were hanging out in the darkness? Now, look at this from a natural perspective. On a summer day, we come in here for church, and the sun is shining and blaring, and I mean, it just sounds like and looks like every flower is singing God's praises, and we just come bounding in here, and we've got all kinds of pep in our step and a smile on our face because it's a beautiful sunny day. But you take the sun away, put the clouds out, and look at what we have today. And then I just kind of stand and watch people moving from their car to the door. And I mean, people got this sluggish look. My goodness, the first part of another week, what this week going to be like? You understand, if, if a person is living in darkness, it affects every aspect of their life. It affects their energy. They don't have a whole lot because they're living in sin. Condemnation and grief and guilt is attacking them. It affects how they look into the face of their loved ones. It's hard to look into their faces because they know what they've been doing privately. If their spouse or their children knew, they wouldn't even respect them. So they have to walk and they look down. But when we cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, 
then that's when that armor starts to shine and people see it. And the more of the darkness that we rid our lives of, the greater the light that's manifested and people will see. And that's what the Lord wants, the armor of light. Well, the scripture also speaks of an armor of righteousness in 2 Corinthians 6 and 7, and it talks about us holding on to right living, knowing what is correct, knowing what is accurate. Paul is given his resume regarding all of the troubles he's had to face, but he says, I put on an armor of righteousness. There's one other thing that's important, too, and that's over in 1 Samuel 17, but I'll, I'll re rehearse the story for you of David and Goliath just to, to give you some, some background to this. David's brothers were up on a mountain ready to fight a battle. And there was a big man that the Bible says was over nine feet tall named Goliath. And he was down in the valley and for 40 days, he walked down into the valley from the camp of the Philistines, and he shouted at the Israelite soldiers and said, give me somebody to fight with. I dare you to send anybody, but you folks won't send anybody. I'm a warrior, and I want to fight and show you how strong I am. Well, Saul was their king. He didn't want to fight Goliath. If the leader doesn't want to fight Goliath, you know the rest of them are going to be trembling in fear, and that's what they were. Fear just spread throughout the camp. David's father had sent him to take some bread and food to his brothers. So he walks up there, and he's pulling his little cart and all of his little stuff, and he looks out there, and he hears the voice of Goliath yelling and screaming, and David's trying to figure out what's going on. He said, who is that man? He said, he's a Philistine. He's a warrior. He's calling us out. He said, I dare you to come down here and fight. And David couldn't understand why every Israelite wasn't running down there to tear this man limb from limb. And, and David, he, he couldn't understand this. He said, look, I'll fight the man if you guys don't want to do it. And he told everybody, and they were listening to him as a young man saying all of this, and they brought word to Saul, and they saw, they said, Saul, we, we found a young man that's willing to take on Goliath. And Saul looked at David, and here's this little scrawny little boy, and, and Saul said, you want to go out there and fight that man? He, he, you're just a kid, and he's been a fighter and a warrior since he was a kid. And David said, King, listen to me, sir said, I'm a shepherd working for my dad, and when one of those sheep get caught by a lion or a bear, I rescue that sheep. I can go down there and take on that Philistine, and I promise you he won't defeat me. And Saul said, okay, well, if you, if you really are willing to do it, because Saul, remember, he's not getting out of his chariot to go down there and fight. So he says to David, go ahead. So he says, but before you go, in, in uh, 1, Samuel 13, uh, 1 Samuel 17, verse 38, he says, go into my tent and put my armor on. So David goes into the tent. He starts putting on a helmet. He puts on all of this stuff. You know, can you imagine how heavy it all is? And he picks up that big sword, and he's trying to wield that thing, and he's maneuvering, trying to see how he's going to be able to fight. He doesn't have a whole lot of agility. So finally, he takes all that stuff off. He says, I don't need any of that. 
And they said, well, what are you going to do? Well, David, he heads on down to the nearest river, sticks his hand right down in the middle of that water where all that mud is, and he finds him some giant killing stones. And he grabbed several of them, put them in his little pouch, and he headed off down to where Goliath was. And when Goliath saw David coming, he laughed. He said, you folks, you folks have a good sense of humor. I've been asking you to send me a man so that I can fight. You're going to send the boy out here. I'm going to feed his flesh to the birds of the air. And while he's running his mouth, David starts trotting. And David's getting closer, and he puts one of those rocks in that sling. And, I mean, he hurls that sling just like one of them little Palestinian boys that you see on television sometimes. He hurled that rock, and that rock hit him right in the head while he was still running his mouth. And he fell down. And David went over to where he was with a sword, cut his head off, grabbed it, took the head back up to the chariot where Saul was at, then went back down to where Goliath's armor was, and David took the armor and put it in his own tent. Now here's my point. If you're going to defeat the enemy, you're never going to do it with Saul's armor. You're never going to do it with Saul's armor. Saul was a man of the flesh. Saul was a man that visited witches and warlocks. There's no way on this earth he was going to ever defeat a man like Goliath. But David went down there and he defeated him because he said, You come to me with your strength and your brawn and your bravery. I come to you in the name of the Almighty God. That's where your battle is at. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And so here we have a truth that's important for us. Any battle that you're going to win, you're going to win it if you trust in God. And the devil, he's doing what he can to cause you to believe you can't defeat him. But we know from Jesus' death on the cross, Satan is already defeated. The Bible says Jesus spoiled his powers, spoiled satanic principalities, in the Greek, that means that the Lord paraded his victory and Satan's defeat throughout all of the heavenly so that every angel and every demon knows Satan is defeated. Now, he doesn't want, want you to know that. And, and that's what all of the, the battles are about today. If he can convince you in your mind that you cannot beat him, then, of course, then the battle is won from his side. He's got several tricks, several things that he does. In verse 11, the last sentence speaks of the wiles or deceits or tricks of the devil. What are some of his tricks to cause you to believe he doesn't exist? A lot of people in this world say there's no God, there's no devil. Now, if you honestly believe there's no devil and there's no reality to it, where do you think this kind of depravity and evil and wickedness comes from? If you think there's no devil. When more than a decade ago, the police were called to a highway in Florida, they were shocked to discover that here was a man that had attacked another man and was holding the man captive and was biting and eating him right there on the highway. Gnawing at the flesh on his face, a man filled with drugs, 
You think people act like that under normal circumstances? It's evil in this world, folks. In Germany, they had to pass a law more than a decade ago because somebody had advertised on the internet that they wanted to be killed on the internet. And there was no law in Germany that said it was against the law to do such a thing. And it happened on the internet. Where do you think a mind comes from that does something like that? Some of these serial killers that you hear about that murder people without any kind of empathy at all and sever the body parts and keep them in their freezers in the basement and all of that. And at the same time, we find out that these folks are on a church board somewhere like the BTK killer was down in Wichita. You tell me you don't think there's a, a devil? Yeah, there, there, there's a devil. I've, I've, I've seen him in a lot of places. I've seen him in people. I've heard of him in people. Lester Sumrall said he was preaching in a full gospel church one time, and he gave the altar call, said he wanted to pray for people that needed help. And he said after the altar call was done, people were leaving. He said one particular person came up to him afterwards. It was a young lady. And when she came down, she said, I, I'd like to have prayer. He said, why didn't you come when everybody else came? Well, she said, I, I was embarrassed, so I, I, I came now. And, and, and so he stretched his hands out to pray for her. And when he did, a man's voice came out of her body that said, leave me alone. We have a right to be in here. She was down at one of those X-rated theaters watching a movie that she shouldn't have been watching, and we entered into her right then and there. We have a right to be here. Leave us alone. This is at the altar in the church. He said to that young lady, who are you? She said, I'm the youth pastor. He said, well, that's not what that devil said, speaking out of your mouth. That devil said, you, you're a person that goes down to these places you're not supposed to be, and now you've got something inside of you. And he asked her, do you promise to never get involved with this again? Do you renounce this lifestyle right now? If you will, I'll pray for you, and Jesus will set you free. Well, he prayed for her. She made the, the renouncement, and the Lord set her free. But somebody turns around and says, there's no devil, there's no evil in this world. Jesus went into the area of Gadara, and they said there was a man there that was filled with a legion of devils. In the Roman army, a legion was 600. That's a lot of evil to be inside one person. Some of you remember that book that came out many years ago, The Many Faces of Eve. The psychiatrists were interviewing this lady, couldn't understand why there were so many different personalities in this person. We call it schizophrenia. But this lady knew inside of her were different spirits at war with one another, combating one another. And psychiatrists don't know how to deal with that because, number one, they don't believe there's a devil. Number two, they don't believe in individual sin. And then number three, they don't believe in the power of God. And one of the tricks of the devil is to cause people to believe he doesn't exist. The next trick of the devil is to cause people to believe that he's not as bad as the Bible says he is. 
I talked to a young man last night that said to me, what if, what if we die and we all get into eternity and discover that God and the devil had an agreement and they were just trying to play games with all of us? I said, what if we die and get on the other side and I'm in heaven and you're in hell? And you come to discover that it wasn't a game after all. See? The devil wants people to believe he is not as bad as he seems to be. I'm telling you, folks, he tortures folks. Yeah. And he created religion to keep people from ever finding the true God. That's why he made it up. He does not want people to find the living God that so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Over in the Congo, that's over in Africa, there are people in the Congo some years ago that believed that this river that was inhabited by crocodiles, they believed the river was a god, and that the crocodiles were a god. And so whenever somebody had a bad dream about somebody dying or somebody in the village getting sick, then they'd take goats or captured fowl and toss it into the river as a sacrifice to the river gods. Well, the father and son had passed in that river, died. And so they called for the chief witch doctors of the region to come together to try to appease the crocodiles in the river so that they wouldn't lose any more people. Superstition, folks. So the witch doctors got together. They made a mud a symbol or mud image of a crocodile inside the heart of that mud crocodile. They put some rocks from the river. They put some grass from the shores of the river. And then they placed it on the ground and put a little plate next to it. And then afterwards they killed a goat. And then they took the blood from the goat, poured it over the muddy crocodile figurine that they made, filled the plate with the blood, and then each witch doctor passed the plate to the others. They drank the blood as a sacrifice to that river god. Folks, I'm telling you right now, the devil tortures people all over this earth. If you think that ritual in that situation is bad, I could tell you hundreds of stories from South America to the Far East of different things people do trying to get close to their God. But Jesus doesn't require anything like that. He died on the cross for us. His blood was shed. And we've got a world filled with darkness. The devil wants us to think that he's not as bad as he's portrayed in the Bible. And people will tell you, what difference does it matter what religion a person has? All of them lead to God. You've got to be kidding me. You have to be kidding me. Do you honestly believe that a Hindu person in their cycles of reincarnation are ever going to find God? One decade, they're here as a bug. A hundred years later, they're here as a horse. Everybody trying to hope and believe they can get into a cycle of rebirth that's going to give them a better state in society. You really think the Buddhists have found peace in their pursuit of karma? They don't even believe in God. They just think there's something inside of all of us that... If we do a few chants and we mutter a few little words, then, of course, everything's going to be all right. The deception, folks, is great. It's great. The Mormon church 
Here's a man said he found some gold plates up under a rock. Nobody could read them but him and a handful of other people. Nobody's ever found those rocks to this day. He says an angel came to him and said there were people in this country before the Native American Indians and Jesus came during the period between his resurrection and ascension and Jesus came to America and preached the gospel to those people but those people lost the true gospel and so Joseph Smith had to come along and, and he had to bring back the truth of the word of God. But here's a man who's the head of a religion and died in a gunfight. Who wants to serve in that? You think about Islam. People try to tell me Islam is a peaceful religion. I say it just depends on where you're living on planet Earth, if you're going to say that. It may be peaceful if you're living in Omaha, but it's not so peaceful if you're a woman living in Saudi Arabia where you have absolutely no rights, where a woman goes from the care of her father to the care of her husband, where throughout the Middle East and rural Middle Eastern villages, a little girl can be engaged by the age of 10 and have had two or three kids by the time that she's 13, unable to go to the market without her husband's blessing and permission. You tell me that's a peaceful religion. Just depends on who's in the religion. And if you're a Christian, there's not a Christian that lives in Turkey, a Christian that lives in Iran. There's not a Christian in Morocco or in Tunisia that would talk about how they have the right to worship the way that they want to worship because they know if they even put a cross on the top of a building, there's likely to be a massacre and there's going to be marching in the streets. Yeah. You see them in Palestine. You see them in Lebanon, Hezbollah, and the Shiites. When they have their Islamic feasts, you see them marching through the streets and they're shouting their chants in Arabic, by blood, by this, by that, we'll serve Allah. Then they're cutting their foreheads and the blood's running down as the cameras are watching it. They used to show it on television. They don't show it at all now because they don't want you to see that side of a peaceful religion. The devil says, I'm not as bad as the Bible portrays me to be. But then also then the devil says, even if you do believe I'm real, you're not strong enough to cast me out. And that's where a lot of Christians are today. They're, they're afraid of evil. They're afraid of darkness. They don't want to deal with the devil. But in so many places, we've run into him. And we've had to stand against him. Told you about the first service we had down there in, uh, in Hayes. I was walking right up the center aisle, getting ready to open up the service. The lady fell out on her back and started having a seizure. Fortunately, we had some nurses that were there. Church was entirely quiet. She's there shaking. I walk over there to where she, uh, where she was, and her eyes rolled up in the back of her head. But she's got this little grin on her face. You know it's evil, looking at me, and then still shaking. Eyes rolled back up in the head. I said to the people, we're going to shout. I'm going to count to three. I'm going to say in the name of, and I want you to shout Jesus. And that's exactly what we did. I said in the name of. Everybody shouted Jesus. I said, I command you to stop this shaking. Come out of her right now. This was the very first service we ever had down there. And the ambulance hauled her away. Well, I didn't see her for four or five months, and she came back, and she walked into the church. I didn't recognize her at all. She said, Pastor, you, don't, you know who I am? I said, no, ma'am. She said, I'm the one that fell out here in the service, that first one. 
I said, well, so, so good to see you. I'm glad you, you're doing well in your back. She said, well, I at least want to share a testimony with you. She said, I ended up in jail for whatever the situation was. And she said, I remember the moment sitting in that jail cell when the devil came inside me. She said, I remember the moment. And she said, when I fell out here in the church and was shaking, I don't have a memory of a whole lot of things, but I do have a memory of everyone shouting Jesus and you saying come out and they put me in that ambulance and as that ambulance was rolling away, said all of a sudden that evil just left me. Just left me. Now Jesus said in my name you cast out devils. Yeah. Northern California that time, there I was pulling in in a little uh, truck with my pastor friend saw a lady come running out of his church as fast as she could, running across the grass to get to the parking lot area where we were. And my pastor friend, he just kind of buried his head in his hands and he sighed and he said, oh, I don't feel like dealing with her. Well, she ran over to his side and was saying, I need deliverance, I need help, I need deliverance, I need help. And so he didn't even open up the door. He didn't roll down the window. She rolled, came around to where I was because by now my door is open. I'm sliding out to get ready to go in the church so I could get ready to preach. And she says to me, are you the evangelist? Are you the visiting preacher? I said, yes, ma'am, I am. She said, I need help. I need deliverance. Can you pray for me? I said, I'll pray for you immediately after service. Are you going to be in the service? She said, yep. I said, I'll pray for you. I preached, whole time I preached, she never could sit still. She walked up and down the aisle, she walked all back and forth, total distraction, disruption to everything in the service. Nobody wanted to bother her, they didn't even want to have to deal with her, but I was just preaching and ministering the word, and when I was done, I said, you, you come on down here. I did this on a Sunday morning, I said, I'll pray for you. When she came down there, I said, I want you to shout the name of Jesus as loud as you can. Those demons wouldn't even let her say the word Jesus. It just came out in almost like an abnormal whisper. I said, okay. I said, I'm going to pray for you. I reached forth my hand to pray for her. She fell down on that floor on her back. I stood over her saying, in the name of Jesus Christ, Come out of her. And she was laying there shaking and trembling. The ladies came, put a blanket over, and they were standing over talking in other tongues and rebuking the devil and telling the devil to come out. In a few moments, I got her up on her knees. I said, I want you to shout the name of Jesus as loud as you can. She shouted it as loud as she could. It came out like, like water flowing out of a faucet that had been shut up. Because the devil wants us to think we don't have power over him, and we do. And for people that say it's not real, it'll be real when you see it. When I was down in Peru, and I was in an Assemblies of God church visiting, I wasn't even preaching. I was standing in the congregation singing the songs in Spanish like everybody else. I had no idea what I was singing, but they had the words up on the screen, and I can read, so I just read and sang like everybody else. And over here, there's a lady, there's me, there's someone, then there's this lady. And as I'm standing there praising and worshiping God, it came to a point in the service where everything settled down and it was quiet. And then this lady 
gives an utterance in tongues. That's what I thought she was doing. Gave an utterance in tongues. I couldn't understand, so I'm still worshiping the Lord and praising him, and it's totally quiet. Nobody said anything. Nobody gave an interpretation, and then finally I opened my eyes and looked, and the preacher was leaning over the pulpit, and he, he's looking at me, and he said, who are you? This is in the middle of the service. I said, I'm, I'm a missionary from the Middle East. I've come uh, I was up in the mountains with Wycliffe Bible translators, and now I'm making my way back or whatever. And, and, and he said, well, that's not what that lady said. I said, well, what lady? And he pointed, and I looked over there at that lady, and then she looked at me, and her face contorted, and she shouted, ha, kind of like that, and started running at me trying to get to me. So all these people were grabbing at her and these ushers had come and were holding on to her and this little little Hispanic Peruvian gal were tossing these grown men just like they were toys. I mean, they were barely able to hold on to her and so I'm standing there and I'm looking at her and I'm marching towards her saying, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. In the name of Jesus, come out of her. This is on Sunday morning. Visitors are there. I don't know who all is in the service. But I'm saying, come out of her. Come out of her. They dragged the lady all the way to the back. And finally, this lady with all them folks standing around her ended up delivered. But you know, here's the thing. They told me afterwards she used to walk out in front of the church, back and forth, and cursed the church because she was a witch. And the people in the church didn't want to have anything to do with her. Folks, I'm telling you, God has called you and me to the kingdom of God for such a time as this. We live in a world right now where people can watch the filthiest stuff on their telephone. Don't tell me that stuff is not affecting people's hearts and minds. Our kids can go into the public library and they can access every kind of, of, of dirt and smut that you can think of. And by law, there's not anything the librarians can do because of all of these different rules that have been passed that say kids have to have access to stuff that's going to confuse them about their identity and confuse them about their gender. But I can tell you one thing we can do. We can stand on the word of God. And we don't have to be intimidated by the devil at all. Every opportunity you have with your kids and you, your grandkids, you make sure that they understand what the book says. And when you're talking to family members or other people who say they don't agree with the book, don't put a muzzle on your mouth and be quiet. Open up your mouth and say, this still is what God says. You may not believe it, but this is what the book says. And you'll find out later on in life, they'll wish they had come, come to know the king. We want our young people to love God and know God. We want our older people to leave this world knowing that they've attended a church where the gospel was preached. We want all of our middle-aged people to be able to know that they can stand steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of God. Because the devil is pushing on our culture and on the church to just retreat and he wants us to backslide, and he wants us to be quiet. And if you don't say anything, and I don't say anything, then he wins. 
He wins. We can sit around the dinner table all day long and talk about how much we don't like what's going on with the school board, but until somebody shows up at that school board meeting and say, look, I'm tired of the devil having power and all of this stuff, and you need to use that kind of language too so you know that you think they're wicked with what they're doing. I told you weeks ago about what they tried to do in Kearney. Had a meeting over there. One of the folks from, from the other, one of the other churches, they, the, the people from Omaha had come down, had a big town hall assembly meeting. They wanted to introduce our five and six-year-old kids here in Nebraska to all of this transgender stuff and wanted to show them explicit pictures in the textbooks. So one of my men texted me and said, Pastor, here is what they're doing. Here is when the meeting is in Kearney. How do you think I should respond because they've given me three minutes to get up and say something? Three minutes. And there were a bunch of other people that had an opportunity to talk to. So I said, well, look, it's going to be heated. It's going to be animated. Folks are going to be mad. They're going to be yelling and screaming. It's going to be cussing. So you need to do something that's different and Christian. Said, when you get up there and you pray, you call the names of each one of those board members as you're praying. And as you're praying, don't pray with your eyes closed. Look them in the face when you're praying. Do it that way. Well, that's what he did. That's what he did. And, I mean, it, it, it's something. If you're in a, a public assembly and you're a board, a board official and somebody's up there praying, then they call your name out and say, Lord, you know so-and-so because she's married to so-and-so and has two kids and lives right here in the community. And that's what he did. And when it was all over and they finally took that vote, Back up there in Omaha, they decided it'd probably be better if we don't introduce them this to these Nebraskan kids. I'm glad that they stopped it, but what troubles me is that there's still so many influential people that didn't see a problem with it in the first place. See, that's the problem. See, the fact that we've got people didn't see a problem with it in the first place. And when I talk to an adult that doesn't have sense enough to know that young people, shouldn't be introduced to that, then you know you're dealing with a mind that has not been saturated with the word of God. But if we let God have his way, then we don't have to worry about what Kale's gonna be when he gets older. Because we'll know there'll be something inside of him with an anchor and a root that'll produce the fruits of Christ, as well as all the other young kids that aren't here today. The bottom line is, folks, it's important for us to put Christ first and not let the world push us back. Don't be intimidated. Let's stand. Let's stand. Young lady, we're committed to seeing God manifest himself in a powerful way in your life.